In our ever-increasingly complicated world, uh, if you spend any time at all having conversations with people or watching the news, it, it, I, I really think that the issues that are facing us in our world are becoming increasingly complicated. Uh, and as a Christian, you're trying to figure out how do I, A, live for Jesus, and then B, tell people in this world about Jesus when it is getting more and more and more complicated as far as uh, what is going on and what people are dealing with in the world. And I think the Bible speaks to that. And I think the Bible speaks to that plainly in that all we have to offer the world is love. And, and it is, uh, even the word love has some different definitions in our world than what the Bible has. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says if, if we do everything in the world but we don't love, we're like clanging cymbals, you know, and, and, and not in a positive way. Apologies if you're a first-year percussion student. But uh, <laughs> there's a reason you're on those cymbals. <laughs> but you've graduated from Triangle. But anyway, my kids are both in percussion, and I'm so proud of them when they take the cymbal step. But... Um, <laughs> when, uh, when we're thinking about and when we're talking about how do we minister to the world around us, how do we be the church in the world around us, how do we be the, uh, the very hands and feet of Jesus in the world around us, love is the primary motivation, it's the primary action, uh, but it is also rather complicated. How do we love in the context of the world that we live in today? And what does it mean to even use the word love in the context of the world today. And so we're doing this study, and this is the second week of it. If you missed last week, you can check online on the church in a city called Corinth. It's, uh, so it's a letter called First Corinthians, written by a guy named Paul, who was a very, very early leader, and he started the church in the city of Corinth. Uh, and here's what's interesting. The city of Corinth, uh, people refer to it as like Las Vegas on steroids. Uh, it is uh, very much, there were two ports in the city of Corinth, one on each end, and it was more cost effective for a ship to dock on one end, unload and bring it to the other and, and load up, then go around the peninsula, the end of the peninsula that Corinth was on. And so the, all the sailors would get off and they would need things to do, uh, while there was a slave class of people in town that would carry things from one ship over to another ship, and however long that took, the sailors would have a bit of shore leave. Uh, in order to entertain themselves. And so there were huge uh, religious uh, practices that happened in that city to the point where uh, there were about 700,000 people that lived in Corinth and to the point and they had a huge temple, huge, ornate, beautiful temple. People would come just to, to look at, like it was a, a masterpiece of architecture and building and those kinds of things. But you would, uh, their gods uh, tended to be like Venus and Aphrodite. Uh, which were gods of the sailors and the seafaring travel, as well as uh, gods that you would worship through ritual prostitution. And, and the numbers that like, historians find is that there were as many as a thousand um, prostitutes who you would pay and the money would go to the temple and then you would uh, engage in activity with them. It's, there are kids here. Uh, and then... Uh, and, and that was how you worshipped that God, or it counted as a religious practice. Uh, and if you think if it's 50-50 split, then there was around 350,000 women in town, which meant one out of every 35 women, that was their job, uh, that was what they did. And if you can think, do you have 35 friends 
than probably uh, one of your friends that was their job. And Paul goes there where there's no one who's ever heard of Jesus and says, hey guys, let's church. And so the Corinthian church struggled with things that our church generally doesn't struggle with. Uh, there were people who learned that communion, a little bit of communion is good, so a lot of communion must be awesome. And they would use real wine, and they would get a little tipsy during communion and think that God must love it. That God does not love that. Uh, um, they would celebrate things. Well, I'm not going to go into all of it. I don't have time. We don't have all day, and the Corinthians were crazy. Um, but what they suffered from was they had this way of living, and then how do we add Jesus to that? And just that question is what they struggled with. When you're trying to add Jesus to something, it never works out. There has to be a complete uh, separation, a complete move to this was my culture or this was who I am to now there's a different set of values and assumptions that I live by that are defined according to Christ. Uh, so they struggled to make that transition just like many of us struggle to make that transition. Especially if you've been saved later in life, uh, it's, those things get complicated. Uh, but... Sometimes if you've been raised in church and your church had cultures that I think are well-intentioned but not necessarily biblical, then you struggle to move along and, and live with Jesus. We've had people in this church who had extremely restrictive views of Jesus and then we kind of introduce them to this openness of what we call following Jesus and they go off the rails. And, and it it feels bad because we're like, well, maybe they were safer when they believed there were fences everywhere. But, but, but this openness of Jesus creates complications. There are very few things that Jesus says yes or no on. There are many, many things where Jesus says, you should definitely pray about this. <laughs> and it is not as helpful as I wish uh, Jesus was. I'm in a Twitter conversation with someone about this, that there's, uh, I wish God was better at his job. And... <laughs> Good. Thank you for laughing. Uh, uh, I preached at a school this week, our, our school, and on Monday I said, I really struggle with the places where Paul is wrong in the Bible. And they all went, hmm, yes. And I was like, guys, like, that's a joke. Come on, please. Like, I don't think the Bible is incorrect, you know? Like, they're all like, you are so smart. You have a microphone. I'm like, no. Like, ah. So I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're only on the second week. Um, for Paul was bad at writing, I had bad eyesight, and so he would uh, narrate his letters, dictate his letters, and someone else would write them down. So his letters tend to, and he was angry when he wrote this letter. Chapter 7 is where we get to why he was angry, and it's bad. Uh, but he's angry when he writes this letter, and he's picking off a bunch of small things that he's mad at. And so he tends to meander a little bit, like he, he, um, he's raging, and so there's just a lot of writing going down and a lot of things going on. So we're like basically skipping chapter two and doing chapter three. Chapter two is fantastic. You can read it on your own time. Um, but chapter three, it goes like this. And I'm actually going to read, if you have a Bible, I'm actually going to read from a different translation. Uh, this is a detail that three of us care about. But I normally read out of the NIV, which is a phrase by phrase translation. But let me back up. The Bible is written in a different language because uh, Jesus uh, wasn't from here. Uh, and uh, so when it's translated into English, sometimes you have to make choices about how you translate it, right? Just like if you're translating from any language, sometimes the words aren't one for one. So the NIV, which I normally read out of, New International Version, is a phrase-by-phrase -phrase translation. 
all right, which means they don't go word for word for word for word, but other ones will do, um, uh, otherwise, like King James, your, your grandma's Bible that says thee and thou, uh, it is, <laughs> it is uh, word for word, so it's sometimes hard to understand. Uh, NIV is phrase by phrase, so it's a little easier, but I'm going to read from New Living Translation, which is kind of like idea by idea, all right? Like it's much more, uh, we're just going to run around out here. But they don't run around as much as the message translation, which I read on it daily. That's my devotional Bible. But uh, anyway, so for the three of us that care about that, that was just an awesome moment. So, <laughs> so I'm going to read. So if you have an NIV Bible, if you use their Bible app, you can just click on the top and you want to switch to NLT. They actually explain some of the nuances of the Greek language in verse 16, 17, and 18 better than the NIV does. So that was an awesome moment, wasn't it, right there? Dear brothers and sisters, I'm going to read bit by bit because it kind of builds. Dear brothers and sisters, uh, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you uh, as I would with spiritual people. Uh, I had to talk to you as though you belonged to the world, as though, or maybe as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You're jealous of one another, and you quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? Uh, when one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, who is another leader in their church, aren't you acting just like the people of the world. I'm going to stop there for a second. Uh, Paul begins with pointing out rather pointedly, like if you can imagine Pastor James gets up this week and says, I have a spiritual sermon for you today, but y'all suck at following Jesus. And so there's going to be some basic stuff that we have to go through, right? You would be like, wow, James is angry, right? Like what is wrong with him today? Like he's normally very nice to us and tells us we're good and God loves us, right? But today, I'm telling you, God is totally frustrated with how much you suck at following Jesus, right? Like, there, uh, it, would, it would be a frustrating, or a, uh, not frustrating, it would be discombobulating. I don't even use that word. It would be confusing to you as far as what is going on? Like, why is he saying this? Why is he so angry? What's going on behind the scenes? And we're actually going to get to what's going on behind the scenes in chapter 7. But Paul is frustrated even because he's, having a discussion with someone and and they're too stupid to even know how smart his arguments are if you're wondering like where's an example of this in the world social media all right <laughs> you say something and someone who's too stupid to understand what you're saying decides to comment right and it's not their fault right? Like they genuinely might not. Social media is a terrible medium for discussions. You know that. Everybody knows that, right? But uh, sometimes I read things and I, I don't understand it or I don't understand the tone because they're just words that are written down. And so I have a rule that all I do is Bible verses, cute pictures, and sarcasm, right? Like that's just what I do on social media. I'm going to say things and you're going to try to think that I'm having a logical conversation and I'm like, don't we do that in like human to human, like normal humans? But uh, if you're wondering what Paul is doing right here, is he saying, I said this is how the church should behave, and you guys on the comment section just torched yourselves, and so I can't even talk to you like normal Christian people, normal spiritual following Jesus people, 
Or maybe if I do, I can talk to you like you're brand new and you don't know anything about what it is to follow Jesus. And Paul has this high level of frustration that we're not supposed to have. But he has it, and it's valid, and he's not lying. This church genuinely is still acting like sinful people. When they say, yeah, 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 we might agree on this, but our denomination is better than your denomination. And Paul's back there like, come on, do you even understand what you're saying? Do you even understand what I'm saying? And so Paul starts off with this frustration because their immaturity is showing. Their jealousy and their quarreling quarreling is showing how worldly, and there's a distinction between the world being the unbelieving world and the spiritual nature of Christians. So Paul continues, after all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? Uh, We are only God's servant through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work that the Lord gave us. And then he's going to use some metaphors. Paul says, I planted the seed in your heart and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their hard work. For we are both God's workers. And you are God's field. And metaphor switch, you are God's building. He's basically saying, whether you follow this pastor or that pastor or read this teacher or study this study, or whether you use this translation of the Bible or that translation of the Bible, all those things just exist to serve you so that God can grow you. Because your growth doesn't come from a person, your growth comes from God. At some point in your life, someone planted the seed in your life, told you about Christ. The seed of salvation, which Paul is talking about, was planted in in your life. And at some point in your life, someone explained things to you. That would be the watering. Here's what this means. Here's what it means to grow in the faith. But it wasn't either one of them that caused you to grow. God causes growth. So if you have grown spiritually at all, That means God has been and is active in your life. If you haven't grown spiritually at all, we need to have a whole separate conversation. And that goes back to the beginning of this chapter where Paul is just raging because you can't handle growth in Christ. So he has this whole metaphor that you, the church, as a body, are God's field. You, the church, are God's building. And here's he switches metaphors. So there's an agricultural metaphor. Now there's a... Uh, architectural or construction metaphor. You are God's building. Uh, Verse 10, because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Uh, So you know, it's kind of funny for whenever a pastor says, because of me, I'm so awesome, you're awesome. Uh, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building this on this foundation must be very careful for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. And he goes through some uh, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. 
there's kind of this warning here for anyone who is instructing other people in what it is to follow Jesus. And this isn't just like for pastors only. This is for anyone who is helping the spiritual growth of someone else. You can do that in a variety of different ways that have a variety of different values. Gold, jewels, down to straw. And it will be tested. It will be tested actually in life, but also at the end of everything, and what the Bible calls the great judgment day, it will be tested by fire, and that which is built into you that is valuable, fire only purifies. And that which is common and not valuable, fire burns up and destroys. And so if you're fluffing people up with unvaluable spiritual growth, at the end of everything, it will be revealed to be just fluff, just stuff that burns up and leaves a pile of ashes. And there will be great loss, not loss of salvation, but loss in your understanding and ability to worship and follow Jesus. Great loss. On the other hand, those who build carefully with valuable things into other people's lives, that building will only be purified by the fire and will only be stronger. All of this, I want to say this, this is an aside, all of this, here's what it points to. Sometimes uh, pastors or leaders will say, like, uh, the Grove is my church, right? And it's not like it's, not like it's my church in a way that I own it or something. Like, it's, it's its own entity, I don't own it. Uh, but sometimes people can start thinking that, that uh, and it comes a it comes from both the person up here and from the person who's not up here. And in a way that it's like, well, it's his church, he should do something about that. Like, I wish this church had did this. And sometimes the person up front will be like, well, I'm in charge, I own things, the church is going to do this. Both of those are mistakes, biblically. Because what Paul is describing, and Paul might be the greatest pastor in history next to Jesus, Paul describes his role as a servant and so really, it's not that you belong to the pastor in whatever church, and I know this might come across weird because I am pastor here, but it's biblically true, and hopefully you can receive this. It's not you belong to the pastor, but the pastor belongs to you. I literally and biblically belong to you. And you might think, good, I need those gutters cleaned. But the responsibility in that is actually should be terrifying because God called somebody, and this is for every single church and, and ours as well, God called somebody to be the leader of the church and serve and you literally own my service. And so if I belong to you, then biblically you have a responsibility to steward your pastor to literally care for your pastor. Because I know there are people in churches uh, who if their pastor said, I belong to you, they think that's a thing where now I can take advantage. And the reward at the end of everything is that your efforts to build will be burned up and destroyed. But those who care for and steward the leaders of their local church are actually living out what it is to be entrusted with gifts from God. This is why that's sketchy, right? Like I just told you I'm a gift from God. 
But I'm not, uh, it's not like, oh, James is awesome. But it is a responsibility that churches have to care for the people that God has called to lead them. And pastors are, I serve on a board in our church uh, denomination, it's called the Board of Ministry. And what we do is help people uh, become pastors, but we also help pastors uh, who are struggling. And there's not a year that goes by, like we're dealing with multiple cases right now of pastors who have overworked themselves and pastors will do this because they love you, right? And they love the feeling of loving you. And they love being able to serve you. And where the church has just been like, all right, I'll take, all right, I'll take, all right, I'll take, all right, I'll take, and hasn't cared for the pastor in ways that he's incapable of caring for himself. There are, uh, like in, when I think about my life, I want to be able to, at the end of everything, I want to be with Jesus, right? And that is... I shared this up at that school. That's the primary thing. Secondly, I want to have my wife standing next to me. So I want to follow Jesus in such a way that compels the person I love most to follow Jesus as well. And then third, I'm hoping my two kids are with me. And so when I like, think of how this church operates, because I have so many friends that are pastors whose kids have false expectations and weird things put on them in order to follow Jesus, uh, I fight against that a lot. And people who have tried to do those things I rage against them, normally alone, and then try to say something uh, kind uh, to get them to leave my kids alone. But uh, <laughs> it's also why when your kids are running in the hall, every time, every, like I think running in a public school hall is against the rules, but every time I stop them and say, there's a rule here, if you're going to run, you have to be screaming. <laughs> and then your kid screams and, and you stop them from running. But... Uh, <laughs> But I don't, I, I once had a kid, uh, a, a man, and not in this church, in another church where I work, tell one of my kids, like, this is how you need to behave because your dad is a pastor here. And I didn't let my kid go around that person any longer because uh, I'm like, that's not going to happen. There are actually, uh, and I'm not going to call them out here, but there are people in this church who care for my kids in uh, like anonymous ways, like at holidays and things like that. My kids don't even know who they are, but I do. And my kids think this church loves them like crazy because they feel like this church loves their parents. Uh, it's building something beautiful. But I don't think that's just because, oh, I want to have a great job. It's because I think it's biblical. Does this make sense? So I'm not trying to talk myself up like, you know, Pastor Appreciation Month is in two weeks, but... <laughs> Can I say something funny and, and y'all not be offended? I used to work at a church with a building and tons of people in like the senior citizens program and I didn't know that Pastor Appreciation Month was a thing uh, until October came and I seriously put on like 15 pounds. Like every day there's like chocolates and candy and you can't say no, right? Like these sweet old ladies are like, Pastor James, right? And I'm like, like yeah, you know, whatever. And uh, it, it, it was incredible, right? Y'all don't even know. Like, I get to, like, mid-October, and I'll get the same card from two of you because the Christian bookstore, the Rainbow Place, only sells one Pastor Appreciation card, <laughs> right? And, and I'm not mad. I'm not, I find it hilarious because I'm not in this for Pastor Appreciation. I don't understand Pastor I think November should be Lay People Appreciation Month, right? And I'll send all of you the same card saying, you're doing a great job, you know? <laughs> like, but it, it genuinely is, I find it funny. I genuinely, like, it's a good time. That wasn't like an underhanded, 
I hope you know that's me. Uh, so the scripture continues. <laughs> I think that's an important aside that we don't always have the opportunity to talk about honoring your leaders. I also don't think it's just for church. I think you should honor your leaders at work. I think you should honor your leaders in government. Uh, and, and sometimes at work, that's hard. Sometimes it's harder. Uh, sometimes it's hard to honor your pastor because he's frustrating. Sometimes it's hard to honor uh, your, your boss at work, and sometimes it's hard to honor your elected officials, uh, but I think it's biblical, and I think you're called to do that. And I don't, that's not worship, that's honoring. All right, uh, I have a whole bunch of things about that, but I'm going to just post random things on Facebook because the comment section will be great for us. <laughs> Verse 16, let's move forward. Can we just keep going? Um, New Living Translation. Don't you realize that all of you together, and this is where the translation gets great, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? Or as other translation would say, among you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It is a wildly empowering thing, but I don't think we catch this as much as the Corinthians do. The Corinthian church was in a town where people would come to town so they could look at how beautiful the temple was. And most of the early church Christians were Jewish people. Some Jewish transplants would have been in Corinth. And they know that they've been to the temple in Jerusalem, which might be the most beautiful temple in the world. And God says, uh, and, and sorry, God started this church in Corinth that met in people's homes. This church had no building. They'd meet in people's homes and in public spaces. They'd rent middle school gyms and middle school cafeterias, uh, cafetoriums, and they would get together uh, right beside the most beautiful, ornate buildings of worship that they've ever seen. And God says, you are the temple. And, and not just like the temple courts, the word actually, the way that Paul Spock speaks about in the original languages is that you're the holiest part of that temple, the part where the glory of God dwells. And if you were in, ever are familiar with the Jewish temple, there was a very large court where anyone was allowed, and then it got smaller and smaller, and there were more and more restrictions. And then the very most inner part is where God actually, his glory dwelt. And you and I weren't getting in there. Very, very few people ever, ever walked into the room where God was. And yet this church that struggled with uh, sexual immorality, that struggled with getting drunk at communion time, was struggled with just living in the culture that they lived in, God says, you are the holiest part of the temple. You are the most beautiful expression of who I am on this earth, that people will travel for miles around in order to see you interact with each other. It's confusing because they're used to temple being something beautiful, something huge, something unifying, that, hey, this is the grand temple where we worship. This is where we get together in order to connect with our God. And Paul says, that's you. You in your original 1952 middle school metal chair in a rented space that we have to clean up afterwards and be out of here by 1230. You are the most beautiful expression of God that God has ever dreamed up. If God wanted to, he could build something huge and beautiful, right? 
it's fairly simple for the creator of the universe to make something that we go, hmm, that's, that's impressive. Living in the Pacific Northwest, that, that's our, our daily routine. This is impressive. Yet, when God says, what is the most holy and sacred thing where my presence will dwell? It's a gathering of us. Like when you came in this morning, you probably weren't thinking, you know, when we're all in the same room, that is stunningly beautiful. Right? But it is. Because there's people in this room who under the old temple system weren't allowed close to the glory of God. And yet in this room, the very worst person, not even the very worst Christian, the very worst person is invited to be intimately close to the presence of God in their lives. The beauty in that, I mean, you, I, I'll never get past that. That God takes the most sacred things and gives them to us. <laughs> it's like God doesn't even know us. <laughs> like, here, here's something sacred. Let's see what you do with it. You don't give your most valuable and breakable and sacred like family artifacts to your children, right? They're going to break it. And God gives it to us. And what do we do on a regular basis? Dang it. We dropped it again. <laughs> and God picks the church up. He puts it back together. And he says, here, let's see what happens this time. And we do it again. So this last verse is telling that God will destroy anyone who destroys his temple. This is what that means. Uh, and the word destroy doesn't mean like burned up. In a, it means more along the lines of like corruption. If you are a part of a church and you are intentionally working against the unity and the vision and the dreams of that church, God promises he will wreck you. Isn't that uh, terrifying? <laughs> God says, if you're going to work against what I'm trying to do among this people, this beauty, if you're going to be the one when I give you something beautiful, you're constantly throwing it on the ground on purpose. God's saying, I'm going to throw you on the ground on purpose. <laughs> That's kind of vengeful, doesn't it? Think? <laughs> but the reason is because God's temple is holy and that's you. So if you catch one thing, it's this, that you are God's temple and you are holy. You and me, us. Like we weren't thinking when we set up today like we should definitely uh, behave in a certain way or like dress in a certain way because dang, this is going to be sacred. <laughs> we were more thinking, I'm super late. I'm so frustrated. Why do we start so early? <laughs> it's not that early, but okay. I'm there with you. I'm there. We were late this morning, too. Not like late like some of you. I tried to be here early, but. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a beauty and a sacredness and a holiness to what we're doing right now. This is why we sing together. This is why we pray together. This is why we give to the same fund and try to propagate the ministry of this church. Because we are God's expression of an alternate way to live in the world which is living with a completely different value system. And God is calling us to live as sacred as we are. Not because of us, but because of who he is. The beauty of when you grow in your faith, 
and become more solid in your faith. And this is really, uh, this is really the expression. The beauty of when you grow is that the church grows. Because as much as people like to talk about your relationship with Jesus being personal and private, it's not. When you grow spiritually, this church grows spiritually. When you grow in your relationships to other believers, this church grows in its connectedness. This church grows in its unity and its impact in the community because of the witness of unity. This church is a collection of us. And so who you are and what you do doesn't just matter for you. It matters for the people sitting next to you, the people sitting behind you, the people sitting in front of you. It matters for the next generations that are coming up. It matters for the people who have no idea that the presence of God exists in this public space on a Sunday morning because of who Jesus is. It matters. So you need to grow spiritually. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you do that. But your spiritual growth matters for the mission of God through this church in this town. And you need to build your relational connections to other believers because it matters for the mission of God through this church in this town. I'm going to pray for you in that way, all right? Let's stand and I'm going to pray a blessing over you. Our God... I want to pray a blessing over each of us that we open our hearts to your growth. Our God, we thank you for in the very center of, of who we are, maybe even like the very center of the connection, maybe the center of this room, or the center of the con- relational network that we have, the very glory of God dwells in us. And while we know Christ lives in each of us, and we'll get to that in chapter 6 of First Corinthians, we also know that the glory of God exists among us. And so we're going to worship together this morning, God, as an expression of that glory. And I want to pray that you would open our hearts to spiritual growth. For some of us, that might mean a commitment to read the Bible or a commitment to make uh, a couple of choices each day that are in line with the Bible or, or starting a new habit or ending a destructive habit. God, I pray that you would empower us to enjoy the holiness that you've already put in us. Not that we can earn it, not that we can be better at it, but that we can enjoy what it is to be the witness of God's presence in our world. Amen.